0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Hello and welcome Good to have you with us today for the launch of USIP's Senior Study Group Report on China's Influence in the Freely Associated States of the Northern Pacific. As many of you know, USIP was founded by the US Congress in 1984 as a national, nonpartisan, independent institute focused on preventing, mitigating, and resolving violent conflict around the world. As part of that work, over the last few years, USIP has led a series of senior study groups looking at China's influence on conflict dynamics in specific countries and regions around the globe, including Myanmar, North Korea, the Red Sea Arena, and South Asia. The report that we are launching today is the fifth in that series. This report examines China's increased engagement in the Republic of the Marshall Islands, the Republic of Palau, and the Federated States of Micronesia, collectively known as the Freely Associated States. And this report comes at a particularly important time. First, because China's engagement across the Pacific Islands region is increasing in ways that have important implications for U.S. national security interests. And also, because the compact's of free negotiation, those agreements that form the foundation of the U.S. relationship with each of the freely associated states are currently being negotiated for the future. The project that we are here to discuss today was led by three exceptional co-chairs. First, Admiral Phil Davidson, former commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. General David Stillwell, the former Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, and Dr. Robert Underwood, former delegate to the U.S. House of Representatives from Guam and former president of the University of Guam. Under their leadership, USIP convened an expert group of 16 experts who met five times by video conference and once in person. And the group also consulted widely with officials and experts from the freely associated states themselves as well as from other countries around the region. I want to take just a moment before we dive in to thank the members of the senior study group for the time and energy that they generously gave to this project over the last nine months. This would not have been possible without them, so if you'll bear with me, I want to read their names just to make sure that they are recognized for their contributions to this project. David Cohen, Jerry Finnan, Lori Foreman, Carla Freeman, Mary Hattori, Elizabeth Havis, Francis Hazel, Ken Cooper, Satou LeMay, Bonnie Lynn, Jim Loy, Jonathan Odom, Andrew Scobell, Vikram Singh, Alan Stamen, and Alan Tidwell. We are grateful for their efforts and the expertise that they have shared with us throughout this project. Now onto the main event. Um, It is my honor to moderate today's discussion with our exceptional panel of experts. Uh, first, we are honored to have two of our co-chairs with us, Admiral Phil Davidson and Dr. Robert Underwood. Uh, unfortunately, General David Stilwell, our, our third co-chair, was hoping to join us but had a scheduling conflict pop up, so he will not be able to make it. Um, but rounding out today's panel is Ambassador Joe Yoon. Um, many of you know that Ambassador Yoon is currently serving as the presidential special envoy for compact negotiations, and he is also a senior advisor here at USIP, so he is particularly well-suited to join the discussion today. Um, so with that, I think we'll open up the conversation about the report, uh, your impressions of it, and, and main takeaways, and, and we can start from there. So I guess I'll start with our two co-chairs um, and ask both of you, um, you know, why did you decide to get involved in this report? Uh, we're very glad that you did, but be curious to hear from both of you, you know, why you think this question of China's influence in the freely-associated states and U.S. relationships with these countries is so important. Um, perhaps, Admiral Davidson, I'll start with you.
0: Oh, Thank you, well, um, First and foremost, I, I think the enduring prosperity and security of the United States is deeply rooted in the Indo-Pacific region. And next to that, we have this extraordinary relationship with the Freely Associated States. First, in my mind, always becomes uh, our, our continental and Hawaii and Alaska presence in the United States uh, on the Indo-Pacific Rim. Of course, our territories—American Samoa, Guam, and the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas—and others, um, and then this very unique relationship that we have with the freely associated states, um, which occupies um, such large air and sea space, but with such small populations and much, uh, much small landmass. But this, the compact and the structure of the freely associated states is probably not well known. Uh, to most Americans, and uh, I I would submit here in Washington as well, and I thought it was important to shine a light on the strategic importance of the Freely Associated States, Palau, uh, the Republic of the Marshall Islands, and the Federated States of Micronesia, um, to make sure that the compacts, the very unique uh, interdependence of our nation with those three nations, and our obligations and the benefits we accrue from the security and defense aspects um, have a light shown on it and um, be discussed in, uh, across the expert community. Um, so I thought it would be a benefit to Washington. All
1: right, thank you. Dr. Underwood?
2: Uh, well, uh, first of all, I'm... Um, I live in the area and uh, <laughs> I'm basically I'm from Guam and this is my home and I uh, spent uh, much of my professional life not just working in Guam but also working in the surrounding area going back to the days of the Trust Territory of the Pacific Islands. And as the Admiral has stated, very few people kind of understand the complexity of these relationships and, it, and they don't understand them here. And I worked here for 10 years, I kept trying to explain it and it's still not very clear, but. There are relationships with territories, uh, like Guam, and then there are relationships with these independent nations called Compacts of Free Association, Freely Associated States, and, and kind of run on and, and both territories and the Freely Associated States, kind of run back and forth between being domestic entities, kind of international entities, foreign entities. Not quite sure how they fit into making both uh, domestic policy and foreign policy. And now we have uh, uh, a series of changed circumstances uh, in the broader Pacific, uh, which of course are impacting the lives of the islanders and are drawing attention uh, to that part of the world. And so trying to look at it as an an entire region, especially from the perspective of someone who lives in the region and who feels that that this is is, uh, my home, my homeland, and I want to make sure that everything that happens, especially in relationship to the United States, advances the interests of uh, the islands themselves as well as the United States. Um, It it has to be made clear these are not protectorates, these are not territories that are owned by the United States and and that this is not a patron-client relationship. This is a relationship that supposedly founded on some enduring values, and those enduring values are important to restate in the process of negotiation. Commitment to democracy, commitment to openness, and and the advancement of peoples in those areas, and then to establish the defense and diplomatic uh, conditions that enhance those things, as well as deal with uh, the the concerns that that people have. So people in the territories, and of course people in the freely. States are uh, really affected by all the conversations that are going on about uh, uh, Chinese influence and so it's really vitally important to have a kind of an island perspective on many of these issues.
1: Wonderful thanks. Oh, I've heard both of you lament that there is perhaps um, not enough understanding of the U.S. relationship with these three countries in Washington. Um, however there is one person who understands these relationships very well here with us today um, and so Ambassador Yun I would turn to you and ask if you could tell us a little bit more about why the U.S. relationship with the Freely Associated States is so important um, and perhaps a little bit about your role now as you're negotiating the compacts.
3: Thank you uh, Dr. Stats. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with Dr. Underwood and uh, Admiral Davidson, uh, two two persons who know so much about this area. You know uh, you mentioned a lot of senior study groups and I was of course uh, took part in the first one, one on North Korea. So doing the compact, these are two really polar extremes (laughs) of what US interest is in. So, I mean, like uh, what the Admiral said, uh, even though i had done a lot of work for State Department uh, on Indo-Pacific area, I really did not know that much about Freely Associated States when I started my current job uh, in late March this year. And so it's been learning by doing, you know. And so I've made some observations and I wanted to also test them uh, on uh, the Admiral and uh, uh, Dr Underwood. One is that and I think this goes well with your first recommendation that we need to engage deeper and more the United States and what when I talk to uh, FAS uh, partners what they want is respect. I think respect is a very important concept. These are very proud Pacific Island countries with tremendous history and culture behind them. They're small, they had been largely colonized over the last century or more, and they have just found their own self-determination, sovereignty, and so I think for them sovereignty is important and uh, self-determination is important so while they still rely on compacts for economic assistance they know that they are strategically important and so the first question I, I, I have is compacts are not what I would call straightforward economic assistance. It is much more we give them what we can in terms of economic assistance, immigration rights, and federal services, and in return they provide what is very important especially for Indo-Pacific command that the Admiral used to command, which is that we have strategic rights strategic denial rights over the vast area which essentially covers most of the Pacific, northern Pacific between Hawaii and the Philippines. So, so that's the first point I want to make. It's not straightforward economic assistance. The second point I wanted to make was that uh, Let me say I did have a second point, uh, which is that compacts have defined the relationship, but it's gone through changes over the past 40 years. I would say there was significant change in compacts of, you know, uh, 1980s, as opposed to the last compact that was done in 2003. So still in the 1980s, Soviet Union was important and in, in, two, in, in, you know, in 20 years later, it's no longer there. China had yet to be a major threat. And now it is, of course, we're involved in this competition with China. And so, but my point in this is, we should not look at compacts Purely vis-à-vis our strategic competition, whether it be Soviet Union or China, it is in our own security interest, you know. And so I think we should be a lot more constant, lot more long-term uh, in our goals to uh, the FAS countries. And I guess the. The last, point, uh, the, the, the last point I want to make in that so it's, it should not be about China, rather, it's about our own United States security itself. Just to give you a little bit of update to close it up, uh, I wanted to say that the, the compact negotiations have progressed quite well. Uh, we've met three times with Micronesians. FSM and we'll meet with uh, them again next week in Hawaii. We have met twice with Marshall Islands and we'll meet with them also next week. And then I expect to have a second meeting with Palau soon. So our goal is to get all three done by the end of this year but obviously You know, each negotiations involve not only economic assistance, but federal programs and services. And so it gets complicated, each negotiation, or each country, we have to complete about seven or eight different set of agreements. So it's a lot of work, uh, but, you know, uh, at this time we're getting good help from Congress, good help from interagency. Thank you.
1: Wonderful, thanks. Well, I, I think you, you make the very important point um, that I think is important to, to stress at the outset, which is the U.S. relationship with the Freely Associated States um, goes back a long time and is much broader than China. It's it's really, uh, based in uh, cultural ties, values, uh, political ties, economic relationships, all of these things that um, existed long before we started talking about China and its engagement in the region. Um, that said, this report is part of our China series. so we are. Gonna- talk about China. Um, and for that, I guess I would turn to, to Admiral Davidson so, you know, take us into the mind of the Indo-PACOM commander. Um, you know, why are these islands strategically important for the United States? Um, how are we seeing China becoming more engaged in this part of the world, and, and what are the implications of that?
0: Well, thank you. Well, Ambassador Yoon highlighted it um, geographically, which is <laughs> you know, the, the most important aspect of it to a military man uh, or woman. And uh, it's the fact that they are the North Pacific, um, uh, People don't always, you know, people think of the North Pacific as above Hawaii and to Alaska, uh, uh, but in the discussion of of the Indo-Pacific, it's the compact states that are actually the North Pacific. They occupy much of the air and sea space between Hawaii, American Samoa, and um, uh, the Philippines, uh, and the rest of the first island chain, Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines. Why is that important? Well, our logistics and sustainment not just for military people but for the United States, our markets in the Indo-Pacific these areas are are either astride them or just below them depending on how you're moving back and forth from the Indo-Pacific. And um, they also um, are in an area between Guam um, our most important Western uh, domestic U.S. military facility. Um, And again, the first island chain of Taiwan, excuse me, Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines, and South. Um, And as you talk about the second island chain and third island chain uh, issues in the Indo-Pacific, they become very important aspects for defense uh, and offensive capability um, uh, in the second island chain. the ties with the U.S. Um, you know go back more than a century, but certainly deeply since the end of World War II when Americans fought and died mm-hmm. on, uh, in and around um, and on uh, many of these lands. Um, the relationships, people-to-people ties in the military are extraordinary. The three fast states per capita uh, provide more U.S. servicemen and women than any of the 50 states in the United States and any of the territories. It's really an extraordinary heritage and link for the US military to have that as well. Um, And then as we think about the future, Um, what capabilities are coming, you know, from the bottom of the sea all the way up into space. Um, The area of the three freely associated states and our territories um, becomes more and more important. Um, Not only for our own interests, but certainly for China's as well, as they're seeking accesses throughout the Pacific Certainly, in the very beginning of the Belt and Road Initiative, they talked about it in terms of, you know, commercial accesses. But they've revealed in the last three or four years that these are dual-use uh, accesses as well. Everybody's read about the, the secret pact with the Solomon Islands, which is in the South Pacific. Um, but we've seen, uh, uh, you know, a number of activities uh, by the Chinese, commercial, economic, diplomatic... Um, and frankly underhanded in terms of corruption uh, across the Pacific region. South Pacific and North Pacific. Um, Those corrupt activities are meant to co-opt elites um, both in the business world and sometimes uh, in the government world and uh, with the intent of establishing their own relationships and really supplanting ours. Um, It's not that the U.S., I think, resents competition. The U.S. welcomes the development in the region of any interested party. Um, But it's been pretty plain to me that the Chinese objectives are to supplant U.S. interests where they can. And it has to be part of the discussion. Mm-hmm.
1: Wonderful, thanks. I just want to follow up on some of the, the points that you made there. Um, you know, Much of China's investment in the region is economic. And yes. is uh, brings much needed investment in, in economic assistance and support to these islands. Um, of course there are also some links to organized crime and corruption and, and other problems that can be um, certainly something that that these countries need to deal with and hopefully we can help them address. Dr. Underwood, I want to go to you. As you said, you live in the region. This is your home. Um, you know, what, is, what do these dynamics look like from the North Pacific? What does China's engagement, and, and the, both the pros and cons that come with it, what does that look like? Um, you know, you engage regularly with these uh, the leaders of the Freely Associated States. How are they seeing some of these developments?
2: Well, some of the things are uh, quite dispiriting because uh, the nature of some of the economic uh, activities have created the opportunities to uh, for corruption or seeming corruption and uh, kind of um, interfering with local politics. And I happen to know a number of uh, locally elected officials. I've I've, uh, talked uh, uh, at length about this. Uh, But at the same time, uh, the Chinese are welcome as long as the businesses are above board and uh, they provide uh, the opportunities uh, for investment to provide the opportunities for tourism as uh, uh, as had happened in Palau but now the uh, now the relationship is uh, has been strained but the, the the main point here is that there should be some uh, sense of uh, regard and uh, respect as the ambassadors outlined for the entities as they deal with these uh, uh, situations that they're not uh, simply uh, vassals of the U- uh, the United States and they're not uh, uh, kind of runting interference for the United States but instead are actually uh, cooperating partners in this uh, there's a lot of issues that uh, sometimes uh, we don't go into great depth um, but they certainly affect uh, the compact negotiations, include the, um, the, the nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands, uh, the nature of the relationship in the past, uh, and all the activities which were carried out when uh, the trust territory was, unlike all the other trust territories, a strategic trust which the uh, U.S. Uh, directly uh, managed and, and supervise all of those issues are part and parcel of that history so they kind of affect the thinking but i have to say that uh you know uh the, the the other the other part here is to think of the region as an integrated whole even though guam and the northern marianas are quote our territories. They still have issues of their own with the federal government and there's still the issue of self-determination for Guam. But the region as a whole is integrated in many ways uh, because uh, Guam kind of functions as a metropole for the area. So there's all these things that are going on that need to be considered uh, as part of the uh, the relationship and how you deal with uh, migration, out migration, we have climate change, the potential for uh, uh, climate refugees, out-migration and uh, which many of the freely associated states, the uh, likely destination is either uh, Hawaii or or Guam and actually uh, proportionately Guam is bearing that burden the most and uh, but you know they go into other places as well. So it provides uh, a kind of a rich set of circumstances where domestic policy, uh, assistance, and how you deal with the migrants, and how do you deal with the entities that, that have to deal with the migrants, and then how you deal with China uh, in that. I have to say that uh, Many leaders in, in, the, uh, in the Micronesian region are grateful for the attention that that Chinese influence has, uh, has uh, brought upon them because I think now I think they feel that people are recognizing their uh, true value. It should be pointed out that in a place like the Freely Associated, not, not the other places, but in the FSM, Federated States of Micronesia, annually they, they send lots of young people to China to study and they get free tuition they learn Mandarin these young people are eventually not going to stay in China they're going to come back to the FSM and in another five 10 15 years they'll be all over the bureaucracy they'll be into economic activities it could lead to a change uh, series of circumstances so uh, thinking about the uh, the, uh, the the military security arrangements which are immediate and which need attention but also kind of thinking long term what is this relationship need to be like in order to uh, basically secure a peaceful environment for everyone. Mm -hmm.
1: Wonderful thanks. Um, One more note on the strategic aspect. One of the dynamics that we have not talked about yet is that of Taiwan. And of course, um, Palau and the Republic of the Marshall Islands both have formal diplomatic relationships with Taiwan. Um, just curious if you could say a few words about how solid those relationships are and what the implications of those relationships might be. I don't know if you want to oh, say yeah, Sure. There, I mean,
2: <laughs> that, that's a constant conversation. And, uh, you know, uh, both the the, I'm very familiar with both the leadership in the RMI and, and, uh, and Palau and of course they want to maintain those because those are of great benefit to them uh, and uh, and I think uh, uh, it's sort of a little bit awkward for the US to tacitly encourage that but I think uh, the US is tacitly encouraging that because it it helps create a kind of a hedge and uh, it keeps the uh, PRC busy. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Their comments on that?
0: Okay. No, nothing to add. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. well said uh, <laughs> yeah. by Dr. Underwood. Uh, I think it's accurate. So.
1: Okay. Uh, great. Just to follow up on, on some of the points that you made, I think you know a lot of what we try to do in this report and in these discussions here at USIP is to um, share some of the perspectives of the region, right? The uh, policy is made here in DC, but uh, you know it shouldn't be uh, made in a vacuum. And trying to understand how people living in the region understand these issues is is really important. Um, so I guess Ambassador Yoon, to, you, to mm-hmm. you, you know, as um, we're thinking about these relationships. What are the priorities that the leaders of the freely associated states highlight, and what are they bringing to the table? What's important to them um, beyond just the grant funding and the compacts? You've talked about this some, um, but you know, what are their interests in the relationship? What are their concerns about China, and, and thinking about how the U.S. can strengthen our relationship with these countries, um, both in the process that you're leading, but also just in the years to come?
3: I think they would really like. The United States to pay more attention to to them, mm-hmm. and I mean this is obviously a constant uh, request of many places I've been to, including Southeast Asia and so on. Uh, but but again. You know, don't just pay attention every 20 years when we are renewing compact, you know. Uh, Pay attention throughout. Uh, and, and, And this again gets to the idea of respect. I think that's very key. I think the second item is in terms of substantive issues. Climate change is number one. You know, climate change is really an existential question uh, especially for RMI Marshall Islands the highest point on Marshall Island is six feet and so you're going to see really increasingly serious erosion of farmlands Uh, the need to build seawalls and so on, so climate change is very serious and then the second big challenge is of course level of economic development. These are very small countries Palau is the third smallest in population in the world after Vatican, uh, we can have a long debate whether you know uh, well, I won't go into that debate <laughs> on that. You know, very, very un-USIP. You know, uh, uh, and 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 I think Nauru is the second uh, uh, smallest, and then and a third one is Palau. You know, with 17,000 people, and it's decreasing. Um, uh, Micronesia is about 100,000. RMI is about 40,000. So it's a tremendous challenge being isolated, being small. And so for them I, and as, as it is for the rest of the Pacific, uh, and which is why you're seeing places like Kiribati, Solomon, you know, uh, Tuvalu, Samoa, all being challenged. and I mean I'm not smart enough to say what they need to do, but they need economic assistance. They need adaptation techniques for climate change. They need investment. And which is why China offers, even though there are dark sides to China, you've seen them deliver quickly infrastructure assistance, and so on, so I think there is some of that we have to adjust in order to be more competitive.
1: Great. Thanks. Sorry, I was going to back up. (laughs) Um, uh, I guess uh, thinking about, um, as you said, you know, the countries are glad that the United States is paying attention. Um, They want the U.S. to listen to and and focus on and address these issues that are critically important to them, climate change, of course, being at the top of the list and and economic development after that. Um, You know, there has been a flurry of activity and um, a renewed focus on the Pacific Island regions in Washington over the past year. Uh, Of course, next week, President Biden will host the. Pacific Islands leaders uh, for the first ever White House summit. the leaders of the freely associated states will be a part of that conversation. Um, the new White House Indo-Pacific strategy talks a lot about the importance of, of the Pacific Islands. There is a new uh, Pacific Islands national strategy in the works, uh, and again, the freely associated states will play a, a big piece of that. Um, and I guess, Ambassador, you, just to go back to you, you know, mm-hmm. as you're looking ahead and thinking about how the United States engages with the Pacific Islands region going forward, you know, you've mentioned a lot of the, the key areas that we need to address. Um, you know, once your mission is complete and and the compacts are renewed Um, you know how should the United States continue to build ties uh, with the freely associated states to make sure that these relationships remain strong are the compacts enough or is there more that we need to do?
3: I think freely associated states have a special status quite different from rest of the Pacific Mm -hmm. you know so you know you know, we have U.S. as our own island chain, you know, territories, Hawaii being the first, I would say, freely associated states, perhaps second island chain for us, you know? And so given the deep-rooted root, connections between FAS countries and us, uh, I think we have a huge advantage and, you know, for example, we talked about uh, Micronesians going and studying in Beijing. The president of uh, Micronesia and, and vice president of Micronesia all graduated from Eastern Oregon University. Oregon is where I happen to come from, so, so I know that place pretty well. Uh, and so you're right, those ties have to be maintained and they kind of regard Oregon as their second home, you know. And, and now we have, tr- you know, huge population because of immigration rights the FAS countries have they're not going to live in Xinjiang or even Shanghai. They will live in Guam, Hawaii, Arkansas, Oregon, California, you know, and so we have a huge advantage that the United States is home to probably now almost a third if not half of the, you know, overall population of FAS countries. So we have that advantage. And we are giving them quite a big economic assistance every year. So I'm not so concerned about the long-term relationship. It's the short-term, how do we agree on these agreements? And how do we build what we have? And I think that that building block has to start in Washington. You know, uh, I'm glad to say in Congress, there actually is a good strong building block there with a lot of Congress folks quite aware and in fact this issue gets tremendous amount of bipartisan support. What I'm a more concerned is within the uh, bureaucracy, within Washington, whether it's Department of State, Department of Defense, whether they get enough traction. We, in a State Department, we used to have an office that dealt just with FAS countries. But that's gone, you know? And so it's just now one office doing Pacific Australia New Zealand affairs. That's not enough, you know? And so you have to start with bureaucracy, build it out from there for them to take care and manage better and at a higher level day-to-day relationship.
1: Thank you for raising this question about bureaucratic dynamics, because I know this is one that has come up many times in our deliberations over the last few months. Um, And Dr. Underwood, I'll turn to you, obviously. Um, In these conversations, you've made the point many times that there there is a trend in Congress to treat the Freely Associated States as insular territories. Uh, The way that the US government is organized to address issues related to the Freely Associated States is very complicated. It's not just the State Department, but it's it's, uh, uh, bureaus and agencies across the US government um, who are engaged in different Parts of this relationship, um, for good reason, but can also be make things more complicated. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about those bureaucratic dynamics and, and their implications. Well,
2: the the bureaucratic dynamics are exactly that: is that they become entrenched, and people, uh, you know, uh, the the uh, the the funding that uh, Ambassador Yoon is negotiating on behalf of the State Department is going to be managed by the Department of Interior, and then of course you have the uh, the, uh, the 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 the, compact, the citizens of the compact states now moving to the uh, U.S. Uh, states and, and territories like Guam in large numbers. And then they're going to get a series of uh, benefits as individuals who are, who are not green card holders. They're, uh, they, they have a non-immigrant status, but sort of permanent non-immigrant status. And then each jurisdiction is having a, a difficult time trying to understand whether they're eligible for all of the federal programs that are eligible for. There's legislation that says, let's make all of these uh, migrants eligible in the same way that uh, uh, green card holders are eligible. So they're eligible for all of the benefits, which sets up an anomaly because the U.S. citizens living in the territories aren't eligible for all these uh, things. But now they're going to make the migrants uh, eligible for them. And so there's a a lot of uh, uh, lack of cohesion in that thinking. Uh, And I'm hopeful uh, that uh, the Congress will take a look at this and kind of revamp how uh, these things are are dealt with not to just say State Department is the winner over the over interior but to say have a a new structure have some kind of interagency a real interagency arrangement that really addresses these issues because you know HHS is going to be looking at uh, certain kind of benefits that they're going to hand out to people and uh, they're going to have constituencies and the the benefit packages the COVID and, uh... Uh, the the pandemic COVID experience is that a lot of things went right to the compact states as if, in fact, they were territories or domestic areas of the United States, which was an emergency measure. But then that sets up a whole series of expectations for the future as well. So those things have to be kind of carefully uh, uh, thought through and so that the the kind of uh, bubbles of responsibility and burden is more or less equal equally shared or understood by the federal government as a consequence, as a federal responsibility that is a consequence of these uh, compact uh, negotiations and compact relationships. uh, that's the complexity of it. On the other hand, uh, there's lot, there even some people are arguing now. Let's all try to become a freely associated state. What's wrong with that? <laughs> they get they get sovereignty, and they're going to get more uh, the same level of domestic uh, benefits. What's the difference between uh, a, a freely associated state and a non
3: freely associated state? I think there is a <laughs> move in Puerto Rico where they want to be freely associated. States uh, and U.S. citizens.
2: That's right. So that's uh, and you know there's some people who argue that that's already so that's what they call it in Spanish Estado Libre (laughs) Asociado in reality it isn't (laughs) but there's all of these kind of uh, dimensions uh, to that which have implications and uh, uh, for someone who lives in the area, I'm just grateful that the attention to China has allowed all of us to have this uh, very uh, robust uh, conversation uh, bec- because the implications are not just what are you going to do with territories, uh, but also uh, how, how is the federal government going to manage what is going to be a long-term relationship. This relationship is not going anywhere. Uh, Uh, maybe people don't know, but people who are running for office in the Freely Associated States campaign as much. Out of the Freely Associated States as they do inside because all their people are living somewhere else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're living in Hawaii or they're living in, in Guam and in in, in some instances uh, the presidents of these countries uh, were determined by votes that came outside of the country. Right. Yeah. And so there's there's the, these things are have a kind of a, uh, an amazing consequence but it's it's part of the I think it's a, as long as people understand the responsibility for it, uh, we'll do well. I have to say that uh, in, the, in the past few years I've been kind of talking about that the uh, you know, Micronesian region is no longer an American lake because everyone was comfortable with that and strategic denial. But the only ones who seemed to be aware of that was the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, it was they were really keen on understanding that this was a serious
3: uh, uh, and I think on of that circumstances you have and to also distinguish somewhat Indopaycom, right. who are completely Pentagon. aware of yeah. the importance, and Pentagon, you know. I don't want to get too deeply <laughs> involved in this one. And that's <laughs> but, part of the bureaucratic... Yeah, but, yeah, uh, I, I think that's a part of the bureaucratic thing, where Indopaycom is completely aware, and less so as you get further, you know, uh, and far away in Washington, you know.
1: I will ask you a question on this point specifically. I think um, both the depth and the breadth of the relationships um, which are established um, in the compacts is is really astounding. And we've talked about it a little bit today. I hope people will read the report where you can read more about exactly all that that includes. Um, One of the provisions, though, does give the United States the right to establish defense facilities in the freely associated states. Um, But that's not um, a provision that we have really taken much advantage of, aside from Kwajalein, and I wondered if you could say, you know, should the U.S. take greater advantage of this opportunity going forward? How should we think about uh, the potential for uh, defense facilities or military presence?
0: Well, I I think certainly as we think about the security of the United States and the threats that emanate from the Indo-Pacific region and kind of the new dimensions of, you know, long-range rocketry and our ability to defend against that, both the continental United States, but our allies and our allies territories as well um, uh, in addition you know new capabilities in space and things like that. Um, we need to be thinking about the freely associated states. Um, During my time uh, as the Indo-Pacific Command commander, there was intense interest uh, from the Congress um, resulting in the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. Um, We talked at depth strategically across the department and with the Congress about what our posture needs are. That's code for, you know, where are there places where we could go? Airfields, logistics support, ports, things like that, you know, within the first, second, third island chains um, that perhaps need some attention and some opportunity. There are some initiatives underway, um, budgeted already uh, in the Freely Associated States, uh, and I think there's opportunity for more. We've heard from the Republic of Palau and the President there who's asking for uh, U.S. defense facilities and bases uh, in his country. Uh, And it's something that we need to be doing more of. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly be be aware of as we think about strategy for the United States and our long-term security um, interests and what these three freely associated states deliver to the United States in terms of benefits, not just obligations. Yes, absolutely, thanks.
1: Well, we are running low on time, but I would like to give each of you a chance uh, to make some final concluding remarks or observations if you would like. Um, You can take that in any direction you like, but I guess specifically if there are any um, findings or observations from this report, but also the conversations that have informed it over the last several months uh, that you found to be particularly uh, important or noteworthy that you would like to stress or share um, here today before we end this event? Um, I will let our co-chairs contemplate on that just a minute. Ambassador Yoon, I'll go to you first because you see scribbling notes, but if you have any thoughts you'd like to, so to leave us with. I've worked
3: with a lot of you know so-called allies, you know, not so-called they are allies and partners and in a way we have mutual defense treaty like South Korea, NATO, and so on. I I think, you know, what people don't realize is the compacts are even beyond that, way beyond that uh, in terms of the alliance commitments, defense commitments, strategic commitments. And so they are really, I would say, continuation of a lot of things we did while they remain, they were UN, uh, UN trust territories at the time. So that relationship has continued, but evolved. And I think uh, Dr. Underwood's point is a good one. We are, we, there's no doubt we have a long-term relationship with them, but that relationship has to be day-to-day managed well and that I think is the challenge for uh, Defense Department, for Interior Department and as well as for State Department and I do think uh, Dr. Underwood's recommendation that there be an interagency process on top looking at these things I think that will go a long ways towards making sure that we actually fulfill the long-term promise, that is the uh, free association.
0: Great, thanks. Go down the line. Well, I think the most important thing um, for me as a result of the study is one, is the uniqueness of these relationships. Uh, And I don't think that's uh, necessarily well appreciated. Um, And they, uh, despite their small size, the interdependence, the benefits and obligations that our two our collective nations enjoy here, um, need to be approached with that uniqueness in mind, and that's why it drives to more attention. It may drive to a wider interagency process, so that you can assess the the collision of you know uh, international and national. Um, obligations and benefits that we derive from the two nations. You know, we've, we've got to get FEMA, FEMA is involved, right, and the National Weather Service is involved in the Freely Associated States. Um, the Postal Service, you know, they all have a voice, but they all need to understand, you know, from an interagency uh, uh, level, you know, what that benefit independence dependence is and why it's important to our collective security and prosperity. Uh, I, and by collective I mean the United States and these freely associated states. Um, it, it's really really important and of course when I say the United States that, that includes our territories as well.
2: Okay. Well, it's uh, really important. I think uh, Admiral Davidson has highlighted that this is a relationship that is uh, interdependent, and that's really important to understand that there's, this is not dependent independence, but it's interdependent. It's, a, it's an ongoing relationship, and it's a very complicated one. And, uh, and uh, the, on the U.S. side of it, uh, the benefits that accrue from this relationship are, of course, enormous and not. No one is trying to put a dollar amount on it, but they are trying to put a relationship uh, 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 amount on it, if you will. And it's important to understand that as well, that this is a, a region on its own. Uh, it, it includes the territories. It's a regional uh, and then there's a relationship with the other Pacific Islands. So uh, as, as recommended in this report, uh, don't stand in the way of uh, the Pacific Island Forum. Encourage that. Encourage uh, healthy relationships. Encourage the uh, the regional uh, cooperation that exists between the freely associated states and and, the, and Guam and the CNMI. Encourage that because that really accrues to uh, the benefit of all concern. And uh, as always, the, 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 uh, the United States is, uh, uh, is a Pacific power with a Pacific interest. It's also to some extent has been responsible for a Pacific Empire. So trying to balance all of that is a complicated issue in the 21st century, uh, but Ambassador Yoon is up to it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Tell tell my boss that. On that note, I think we will close today's event, but before we do, I just want to say a quick uh, word of thanks uh, again to our co-chairs, Admiral Davidson, Dr. Underwood, and General Stilwell uh, for the time that they have dedicated to this project. We're grateful for your leadership. We're so glad that you could be a part of it. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Ambassador Yoon, thank you for joining us, for your wise counsel throughout, and for your service right now in this very important project of compact uh, negotiation, and we're really glad to have you with us. Um, I want to also thank the members of the senior study group Themselves, uh, who also really dedicated a a tremendous amount of time, but also just um, decades and decades of expertise on these issues uh, that was incredibly valuable as we pulled this report together. Um, And last but not least, I'd like to thank the USIP team uh, that was really instrumental in making this happen. As anyone who's done a project like this knows, um, it's not possible (laughs) without a lot of people uh, doing a lot of hard work behind the scenes. I wanna first thank uh, Brian Harding, who was the project director for this effort. Um, And we also had terrific research uh, and writing support from Camilla Polly anderson Nicole Cochran, and Trevor Sutton. Um, So we really appreciate all of their contributions. And finally, thanks to all of you for joining us. Um, The report is live on the USIP website now. We hope you will download it, and we hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.